0: I knew that there would be censorship of science under the Trump administration, and there is right now, especially on climate change. I didn't expect the censorship to be so rapid and to come in the form that it did and to be in response to uh, something as venal as wanting to be
1: able to brag about uh, the size of the crowd at inauguration. Hello, welcome to The Resisters, a podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Faith. I'll be the first to admit that science was not exactly my favorite thing back in school, but this year even I am a fan when government social media managers at EPA and NASA and the national parks are tweeting out rogue science facts. And then, of course, back on April 22nd, Earth Day celebrated like never before this year with hundreds of thousands of people descending on Washington, D.C. and 500 other cities to march for science. Today, I'm excited to nerd out with Aaron Huertas, one of the people who helped make that march happen He ran communications for The March, and he has more than a decade of experience in the field with the Union of Concerned Scientists and Next-Gen Climate, and now as an independent consultant. Aaron, so great to see you, and welcome to The Resisters. Thanks so much. So uh, The March for Science was a massive production, and you were one of many people involved in planning, uh, but you played a key role and a unique one. I wonder if you could describe your role.
0: Yeah, I think it's been really interesting for those of us who've worked in politics and science for so long to see so many new people coming to the conversation and wanting to do things uh, post-election. So the March for Science kicked off after Inauguration Day, Uh, and as a lot of people recall, the crowds at Trump's inauguration were not that big, Um, and the National Park Service's... Uh, One of their accounts had retweeted a comparison shot of the Obama inauguration with tons of people and the Trump inauguration with less people. Uh, And then, of course, there was a spectacle of Sean Spicer going up and giving the press briefing with these monitors and trying to make the case that more people were there. So, you know, I knew that there would be censorship of science under the Trump administration. And there is right now, especially on climate change. I've worked so much on climate over these past several years. I didn't expect the censorship to be so rapid and to come in the form that it did and to be in response to uh, something as venal as wanting to be able to brag about uh, the size of the crowd at inauguration. So that sort of uh, interference with science agencies, including the National Park Service, um, is, you know, something that One scientists are very sensitive to, but it's also something that the internet writ large is very sensitive to people hate censorship, especially online. And if you censor something, people take whatever you're trying to censor and they amplify it because there's just no friction on the internet. Um, So it just gets retweeted everywhere. We wound up with these rogue accounts And uh, independently, uh, a lot of scientists and a lot of communicators talked about creating a March for Science. Um, And out of those conversations on Reddit and Twitter and in other venues, uh, they built a Facebook page that blew up. Uh, and I just kept showing up to those conversations. So as the organization cohered and as it got onboarded onto a Slack channel, I just kept showing up and saying, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And then just helping. Cause I realized that everybody was pretty new to this, uh, and would just really benefit from whatever advice and experience that folks like me can offer. who have been at it for a while.
1: Right. And I'm, I'm interested because you're not a scientist by training, right? But you clearly love science and, uh, uh, I'm just curious what you love about science that some of us might have missed uh, when we were deciding what to do with our lives.
0: Yeah, I, I very much thought I was going to be a scientist when I was a young young guy, um, and my uncle, Matt, is a physics teacher, and uh, teaches physics and astronomy at Foxcroft Academy uh, out in Virginia, uh, where my old governor, Christy Todd Whitman, went to school, um, so so Matt is a really talented teacher. He's someone who's always cared about my education. Um, and he's somebody, uh, who has the resources working at his school where he can take his students on really awesome trips. And I got to tag along with a trip to the tokamak fusion generator, in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, when I was maybe about 12 years old and that was my first time meeting, uh, working scientists and being able to talk to physicists who were doing this really cool research on fusion energy. Um, and I just nerded out the whole time. And at the end of it, our tour guide said, you know, I hope you've enjoyed this. If you enjoyed it, our congressional funding is up for review. We think our lab is going to close because we're not going to get that funding. So contact your member of Congress when you go home, tell them how great this lab is and that you support our work. And that was a really big wake-up call to get early in life that the political conversations my family would have around the dinner table were actually related to all the science that I read about and nerded out on as a kid. Uh, I always gravitated toward communications. I've always been civic-minded. So, uh, you know, uh, typical civics nerd, you know, participating in uh, student politics and then uh, studied political communication at George Washington University. And as I learned more about Uh, you know, frankly, how easy it is to propagandize to people and to fool people and to misinform people, uh, that scientists and journalists and people who care about the truth, um, that they need to be able to push back
1: against that and accurately inform people about what's happening in our world. So uh, most marches that I've been to focus on more of an issue in a classic sense, right? You know, women's rights, civil rights, peace, and the March for science was named for what I think of as more of a field of study and a, a base of knowledge. What exactly did it mean to march for science?
0: Yeah, I think the the experience of trying to come up with messages for the march that we're unifying, um, in my mind, it really comes back to the public service role that science plays. why science is important for informing policy. Why public science is important, right? Uh, There's no business out there that pays for clean water or clean air. There's, uh, there's some things that we can only do together through public science through taxpayer funded science. Uh, I think the motivations for why people marched, uh, there was definitely a lot of anti-censorship signs and a lot of sentiment around that. Again, people hate censorship. Um, there was just the idea that science helps us get at truth and what we know, um, and a lot of signs, you know, science is not an alternative fact, those sort of things. Uh, and I also think like a lot of other marches, um, there there is identity associated with this, right? There were people bringing signs that talked about what they studied and why that was important. There were people who just love science a lot and are science geeks like me and get really into it and wanted to march because they felt like that was important too.
1: the women's march was unprecedented and historic. And I wonder if that was an inspiration as these conversations on Reddit and elsewhere began to happen about this march.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think seeing other people march puts you in a space where you say, well, you know, what if my people march too? uh, what would we march for? What would that be like? Um, and I think that idea of wanting to be very visible and public about your politics, uh, is a very cool thing. Uh, it's, it's a reawakening of civic engagement that we're seeing across so many fields and across so many different, uh, types of people and type of issues. And I would also add that for the women's March, uh, I marched with a new group called 500 women scientists that, uh, cropped up after the election, Uh, And that was an open letter that way more than 500 uh, female scientists wound up signing on to. Uh, but they really care about uh, diversity in science and, you know, protecting vulnerable communities. Um, and they, they similar to a lot of these other groups, Um, also have uh, branches and affiliates in other cities now Um, and have kind of expanded out into a network. Um, and their symbol is a flower, so they call those uh, branches of their network pods, like seed pods.
1: I noticed that you use the um, satellite or sister march model that the women's march, uh, I don't know if it – uh, created, but it certainly used to great effect because it, suddenly it didn't siphon off all the energy in communities around the country and really around the world, um, requiring people to rent buses to come to DC, but enable people to march wherever they were. And you use the same model. Yeah, and that, and that was not intentional. Um, and that
0: actually started happening, I think, before. I started helping out and volunteering, uh, but that was just a natural outgrowth, I, I think, of people seeing these other marches uh, and also people wanting to, you know, celebrate what science means locally for them. Um, and, you know, some of the biggest, most enthusiastic marches were uh, in places like Boston where there's a lot of great scientific resources, right, and a lot of people who really care deeply about science. Um, so, yeah, there were more than 600 satellite marches globally, um, and it was just it was so cool to see all the different ways people were standing up for and celebrating science in other countries and also how many commonalities there were to what's happening in the United States um the brazilian march um you know they had a scissors orchestra. So a lot of people just opening and closing scissors over and over again, which makes a really unique sound. uh, And that was to protest budget cuts that they've already gone through for a lot of their public science. Um, And, you know, similarly the March in Berlin, um, you know, they sang a classic protest song about free thought and freedom of speech. uh, And that was really touching. Right. Um, And to see people who'd gone through, uh, you know, really brutal censorship in their recent history and in lived memory, Also speak out against scientific censorship. I I think it speaks to something very deep about science, uh, which is that it is a global community of scientists. Ideas have no borders. Um, Speech has no borders. Data has no borders. And um, the scientific community has always been at the forefront of having an internationalist view of the world, even going back to, you know, when you had to correspond and send things by ship or carrier pigeon or whatever uh, to somebody to exchange scientific ideas. Um, so this idea that science should be able to flourish and exist outside of the politics of the day is something that's very rooted in that community.
1: You also were unique in in the march's commitment to racial and gender diversity Um, from how you talked about the issues to content on your website, um, the composition of the march's planning team. And how did you accomplish this in a field that is really not known for its diversity?
0: That was a struggle.
1: And the march itself wound up reflecting,
0: I I think where this conversation is at within the scientific community, uh, which is, you know, you have, I would say generally a younger generation of scientists um, who are much more comfortable thinking and talking about inequity and systemic racism and discrimination uh, and an older generation that was taught that, you know, only the work and the data matter and, uh, you know, you're, that your identity is somehow erased when you're doing science. Uh, and we know that's not true. And we know that's not true just from kind of a practical standpoint if you're into these issues, but it's also not true from a scientific standpoint and the social science of how science is conducted, right? We know that systemic racism keeps people from pursuing degrees um, in scientific fields. We know that science itself has a ton of problems when it comes to sexual harassment, when it comes to discrimination and hiring. Um, And again, the March really struggled with that because I think the scientific community doesn't have good language around this. Um, So there were criticisms from – uh, folks like Steven Pinker, uh, who was like, "Ah, oh, this is identity politics. And if you asked him to define identity politics, I don't think he could. Uh, and then there was criticisms from folks who were much more in tune with these diversity and equity conversations saying, you know what, the science march isn't going far enough. This isn't just about, you know, who shows up or how diverse your team is or whatever. This is really about whether or not we're using science to fight systemic discrimination and whether or not the tools of science are being used in ways that hurt people. And historically, that's absolutely been the case. And we've inherited that legacy, and we still aren't doing enough to address it. Uh, And, you know, the story of Flint absolutely gets to that, right? So, you know, that that was important for, I think, illustrating how science can be used to help people who have been discriminated against and who are actively being discriminated against, in some cases, you know, by their own public agencies that are supposed to be protecting them.
1: The march also, of course, sparked a conversation about whether scientists should involve themselves in politics whatsoever, because of the nature of scientific inquiry is unbiased from the start. And uh, how did March organizers walk that line? Yeah, but I've been working in
0: science and politics for like 10 years. Um, so, so whenever someone you know, wants to have this debate about whether or not scientists should involve themselves in politics, uh, it's, it's like you know philosophers debating how many angels can dance in the head of a pin. And you know, one way I've often put this is like, OK, so you have that debate and your conclusion is No. Scientists shouldn't be involved in politics. Who's going to go tell James Hansen that he's not allowed to chain himself to the White House fence to protest the Keystone pipeline if that's how he feels? Um, And I'm actually I'm not sure if he did that or another one, but he definitely chained himself to something as part of a (laughs) protest, which is like, you know, an outlier in the scientific community to take really not just political action, but to also participate in, you know, what organizers would call direct action. Right. Um, So the bottom line is, you know, scientists are absolutely free to advocate like any other citizen. And a healthier way of thinking about this is less of a binary, you know, question about should they or shouldn't they, but to recognize that all science communication is on a spectrum of advocacy. Um, and again, there's there's good social science on this too, uh, but even just saying, you know, my work is important enough where I think a policymaker should pay attention to it is an act of advocacy. Why are they paying attention to your work and not somebody else's? Why are they paying attention to the science and not something else? Uh, And that can go all the way through to saying, I want to actively advise policymakers about their options and say something like sea level rise and how to protect coastal communities, uh, all the way through to, you know what, I'm going to specifically advocate for or against a piece of legislation. I'm going to specifically advocate for or against a candidate for office. Um, And scientists are doing a much better job recognizing that relationship between their work and the science and the facts and where their values come in and being able to differentiate between those two things to objectively engage in advocacy in ways that are healthy and effective um, and also help ensure that scientists do have their voices heard
1: in the policymaking process and in the political process around policymaking. So where that was contentious for some people, maybe who did not involve themselves in the march, but uh, were concerned that a March for Science was happening in the first place, was it because of the risk, the political risk that they saw? Or is there something about, for people like me who are not scientists, uh, something about the the scientific method, a set of professional norms that um, they were concerned about violating?
0: Yeah, I mean, my personal opinion, uh, and there's some scholarship on this, but I think it's a tough question to answer, is that um, in the United States, during the Cold War Policymakers in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party both elevated scientists on this pedestal. Uh, and they did that in large part because it justified defense policy, nuclear buildup, arms race, mutually assured destruction, whatever. Um, so that legacy still carries through. And the idea is that you're not supposed to engage in politics. Otherwise, you might rock the boat too hard. And now we're not going to get our funding, right? So your peers would criticize you. And you would get taken down a peg um, by folks in the political system. And, and, you know, that happened to people like Robert J. Oppenheimer, who tried to speak out against the use of the bomb uh, and, you know, were persecuted um, under McCarthyism. So, um, you know, that legacy is still there. And I think what's happened in the past several years is there's a generational shift. uh, But I also think this conversation around professional norms it's become less and less relevant because the number of scientists who realize that they do need to engage in the policymaking process just keeps growing. Um, And that's kind of the bottom line for me. Like if, if the March doubled or tripled or increased by an order of magnitude, the number of scientists and people who love science who are engaged and who do want to engage. Well, now they're here. They're part of the conversation. That's great. Um, And I think, you know, it's, it's long past time. We need to just let go of this, you know, should they, or shouldn't they debate? It's really about, how do you engage? What's effective? What's good for you personally and professionally? How can you integrate advocacy and communication into your career? Because the bottom line is, if you're not doing that as a scientist, if you're not doing that as a scientific community, someone else is telling your story and someone else is filling the vacuum that you're leaving if you don't show up to that conversation.
1: What are the issues where science can advance the public interest? Climate change comes to mind, but what else?
0: There's a lot of other issues that I think animated people wanting to participate in the march. Um, And whenever scientists see politicians uh, or political ideologues rejecting science on any topic – Uh, It really gets their hackles up, and that's when they get passionate about engaging. Um, So climate change has been the biggie in this field for a while because the contrast between the two major political parties is just huge. Um, And I think there's a lot of other issues, too, uh, that folks maybe don't think about as prominently, uh, right? So we still have fights, especially at the local level and at the state level, um, over biology education, education around evolution in the public schools. Um, That's something scientists care about pretty passionately. Um, There's also some stuff where, you know, for instance, under the Obama administration, uh, the administration overruled the FDA on access to the morning after pill for teenagers. And that's an instance where the law dictates that you're supposed to follow what the scientists at the FDA say. Uh, but for political reasons, they didn't want to do that, right? Um, So this stuff can happen under both parties. Um, Scientists often point to skepticism about genetically engineered food or rejection of vaccines as being a lefty thing. Sometimes it is that those criticisms can also come from the right. Uh, But fundamentally, I think for scientists, it's just when they see a disconnect between what scientists know to be true and when the law says you're supposed to follow the science and what the politicians actually do, that's when they want to engage on it. And it's so important for the scientific community, again, going back to sort of what's baked into how they engage in politics. They really try to keep it nonpartisan and focused on the issues as much as possible.
1: You had mentioned Flint and uh, your three honorary co-chairs. I think I'll mention them because they really illuminate how science touches so many parts of our lives. Bill Nye, the science guy uh, he devoted, he has devoted his life to making science fun and accessible uh, responsible for a lot of kids growing up to be scientists, just the way Carl Sagan, I think, was for him. Um, Lydia Via Kamarov, if I'm saying her name right, a biologist who helped discover how insulin could be made from bacteria. She was only the third Mexican-American woman to receive her doctorate degree in the sciences, and she's founded groups to bring more people of color into the sciences. And then Dr. Mona hanna Atisha. Uh, She's the pediatrician who helped identify the Flint water crisis and press it as a national emergency. Um, So I did want to ask you about the Flint water crisis, which I think we'd agree is an absolute stain on the conscience of this country. And it's really far from over, even though there's been some progress, but that progress wouldn't have been possible without Local residents partnering with scientists. I'm thinking of the researchers at Virginia Tech, as well as Dr. Hannah Atisha and her team at Michigan State. Um, who knows how much worse the crisis would be right now without them?
0: Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Mona's story, I think, really underscores why we needed a March for Science, um, and and why systemic discrimination matters and how it affects science. And um, it also, it also there's a little bit in there about why. Federal public science matters. So, Dr. Mona started looking into lead contamination in her community because she met up with a peer who works at EPA uh, who pointed out that these problems were happening in other communities. And she thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll poke around here. I'll see what's happening in my community. Uh, you know, her data showed that kids were getting exposed to lead. Um, and It was enough of a public health emergency that she uh, took a risky step for a scientist, which is she went out and released that information before it had gone through peer review. Uh, She thought there was enough public interest in knowing what she had found, uh, held a press conference, released that information. The state, uh, which we learned, you know, water officials in the state had fraudulently deleted data showing that there um, there, there was lead contamination in the community. Folks are going to jail over that. Um, and I think when the scientific community talks about Flint, they don't like talking about that part because that's the part where, you know, folks who are supposed to protect the public who are working for the government failed miserably. Uh, and they needed an independent scientist researcher like Dr. Mona to come in and expose that. Um, and to see those independent scientists come in and help to work to protect that community, uh, has been really inspiring. And it, it shows us why we need independent science, why we need transparency in science, Uh, It shows us why good publicly funded science done well is so important. Um, And I think what it also shows us is that scientists need to be able to approach their work with the communities they serve front of mind. And my favorite thing about Dr. Mona's participation in the march was that Little Miss Flint spoke right after her. Um, And she's awesome. Um, and part of her speech was about how Flint kids are smart and they knew something was wrong and funky with their water before the scientists did. Uh, right. And so Dr. Mona came in and empowered people like that. And she stands with people like that as an equal in her field. Uh, and scientists very often suffer from a superiority complex and there's a lot of competition in their field and there's a lot of personality reasons for that. And to be able to approach, your work with humility to be able to approach your work, viewing the people that you serve as being your equals in this enterprise and this great experiment of science and this great experiment of democracy. I think that's where the scientific community needs to go. And I think that's the expectation people have when they're looking at how scientists should be interacting with their communities. Um, and, And the last thing that I'll add about, you know, Dr. Mona's work is, you know, it's local. She lives and works in the community that she serves and uh, for a lot of scientists, that is the case. Um, for other scientists, we've we've sort of cloistered different disciplines and different parts of the scientific enterprise into big coastal cities, or in climate science, um, you know, in in North Carolina, in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and when I look at all the public money that goes into science, I look at what the country did with NASA uh, back in the '50s and '60s. It spread the love, right? There's a lot of NASA facilities all over the country, and it would be great to see more of. The scientific resources and the scientific enterprises that we support as a public spread out a bit more, right? Uh, Let's touch some of those rural communities and exurban communities. And let's not assume that just because, um, you know, for instance, we have a lot of great biotech research and medical research in Boston, that all the new money has to go there. Let's let's spread that love, especially now that sharing information with each other is so frictionless.
1: I've seen protest signs that say, We live here, we're experts too. And I think that it it makes the point pretty well. Yeah. And and from a scientist perspective, you know, they really care about the work and the
0: research. And and that's a value that's baked into their community. When they work more and more with policymakers, uh, with You know, representatives from the communities that they serve, it can improve their research, uh, which is really amazing. It can prompt them to ask different questions about their data. uh, And it's really inspiring to hear scientists talk about those stories and how getting outside of the scientific community made them a better scientist. Uh, And that's actually something that uh, uh, Andrew Zwicker Echoed, And he's a um, he's a state representative in New Jersey, and he's a physicist by training is he works um, at Princeton, I think, with that same particle physics lab. And he said that being a public servant and running for office and winning public office and serving in the legislature, that has also made him a better scientist because he just has this expanded view of where science fits into his community now.
1: Do you anticipate more scientists uh, becoming engaged in the political process, including running for office?
0: Yeah. Yeah. After the election, I, I started a, just a little website called Run for Science, um, and that, that got a bunch of signups pretty rapidly. And then I saw that uh, 314 Action, um, they, had, uh, they had formed a PAC previously. Now they have a C4 um, that they formed post-election. They wound up getting about 3,000 scientists uh, signing up saying they were interested in running for public office or doing more direct political engagement. Uh, So so I got in in touch with them uh, through Dr. Mike Mann, who I've worked with for years, a climate scientist who's probably been attacked by politicians more than any other scientist working today uh, and has totally fought back and is tenacious and awesome. Uh, so I wound up talking with the three, one, four folks combined efforts with them. And I ran a candidate training for them, uh, and then participated in a panel at another training too. So it, again, it's just it, seeing the number of people who want to engage in these conversations and work just increase so dramatically. Uh, it's really, it's hammered home for me that those of us who've been doing this for so long, we're almost like volunteer coordinators now, right? Like so much of my job is just taking the work and experience I have in my head getting as much of it out as possible and handing it off to all these new people who want to do the work too.
1: It's great. Tell us about the experiences of of scientists already working in government during the Trump era. I've heard stories of scientists scrambling to preserve data sets before they were deleted. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, the post did a good overview of this I guess last week. Um, So we've gone from 190,000 data sets being public to 150,000. And and that'll probably keep shrinking. Uh, But it's a lot of stuff that the Obama administration was using to foster more transparency and public accountability for companies that were violating the law um, or were at risk of violating the law. Um. So you know, if you're if you're a scientist who's studying something that could hurt somebody else's bottom line, it could be uh, selenium pollution in uh, a river from an industrial process that's you know hurting some salmon. Uh, it could be runoff from an old mine in West Virginia. Uh, it could be climatic change caused by burning all those fossil fuels. Uh, you know, you're at risk of having politicians who are beholden to those special interests censor you. Um, and that it happens routinely. Uh, It happened occasionally under the Obama administration, too, uh, but now it's open season on folks who are working on public interest science. And just this morning, I saw that uh, the U.S. Geologic Survey, they had sponsored a study on sea level rise uh, and the cause of sea level rise got edited because of political reasons out of that press release, right? So if you're a government scientist and you've spent your entire career studying climate change and you're trying to inform the public about the risks that they face from sea level rise and you can't even say what causes the sea level rise, that's censorship, right? That's like 1984 bad stuff. Um, and it's truly indefensible. Uh, and you you don't even hear a defense of it, right? People just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, yeah, so well, yeah, it's, that's gonna happen, right? Uh, but for the scientific community, I think you know compared to 10 years ago or 20 years ago their ability to fight back against censorship is much much greater um so just being able to expose that immediately online being able to leak something um you know to news outlets from the post or the intercept or you name it i think it's just easier to expose i think censorship is getting harder again because the friction of sharing information is so much lower
1: so i'm guessing that you know people who work at the epa or NOAA, NASA, all the other agencies here in DC. At, do you have a sense of how they're holding up?
0: Morale is really low and it's going to get lower. Um, and I think the most, I'll just say, it, the most depressing parts have been talking to younger researchers who are excited to enter into public service. And then now they have these political bosses who aren't going to let them do public service science. So they're just looking for new careers. Uh, and I don't blame them. Uh, you know, I think the the mid-level and more senior folks, they are in a better position to be able to hold out. Um, they know where a lot of the levers are. They know where the data sets are. Um, they know how to call something something else, <laughs> right, uh, to avoid the censorship and to avoid the political interference in their work. Uh, but, you know, there's only so much you can do when you're dealing with an administration that goes through the entire federal budget and hits Control-F climate and then says delete that, right? Um, there's only so many ways you can fight back. And then at the higher level, I would say that the really senior scientists have been around for a while. They can kind of let it all fly. Right. Uh, because they're insulated a little bit uh, under the Bush administration. James Hansen did that. He exposed attempts to censor his work uh, from a guy named Phil Cooney, uh, who went on to become an Exxon lobbyist. And that was you know a big New York Times story. Um, so we're, we're going to see that kind of exposure again. Uh, another recent example was uh, Ben Santer uh, Lawrence Livermore national lab, uh, very eminent climate scientist. He's been doing this work for years. Uh, he went on a late night show to talk about climate science and to talk about why Senator Ted Cruz is occasionally wrong about science. Um, and you know, I like no one's going to come after Ben Santer, right? The, the guy is a legend in his field. Um, so he's insulated more than I think a younger earlier career researcher would be. And for a lot of these senior researchers, um, they see that they have a civic duty to keep speaking out, right? Because again, it's
1: publicly funded science. So the public deserves access to that science. So is that the only uh, hope for science <laughs> under the Trump administration uh, with its terrifying track record so far? Is the only hope uh, people who work there getting the word out or for that matter, people on the outside continuing to resist? Yeah, that and
0: honestly, just waiting it out. Um, right. And from an individual federal employees perspective, it's hard to make the case, especially if you're working on something that's being targeted that you want to keep hanging around. Um, the, the guy has been running environmental justice work at EPA for years and years and years. He left, right. Because he looked at his portfolio. He looked at the incoming administration, the early warning signs that he was getting from working in the administration. And he said, you know what? I'm going to be able to do better from the outside. I can do more good that way. Uh, You know, will his position be there um, in what, you know, three years and change now? Uh, I don't know. Right. Um, So I think it's a really tough calculus from an individual perspective for outside groups. um, You know, I think they can do a lot to help Uh, my old colleagues at the Union of Concerned Scientists, um, total watchdogs on all these issues. um, And I look at groups like the public employees for environmental responsibility. Uh, But the big thing for me is, you know, go local. Um, talk to your state legislators, talk to your member of Congress, show up to those town halls, right? Uh, the local stuff is where you can actually transcend a lot of the polarization, uh, get back to brass tacks with people. And my views on effective political action changed a lot uh, when I worked for Next Gen Climate and held down a field office there and saw firsthand for the first time in my life in the aggregate, how hard it was for people to register, right? And how difficult some of these states make it um, and what a drag it is sometimes to get out there and vote that it actually does take a lot of energy and motivation uh, in ways that I didn't appreciate fully before. So the bottom line thing is, you know, your community, your group, the people who care about your thing Making sure that they're really mobilized, that they are registered to vote, that they are ready to vote, that they're voting in those wacky April elections, that they're voting in primaries, that they're voting like their lives depend on it, because it does. Um, So if we can break some turnout records in the next couple of years, that would be a wonderful thing. That would be a great thing to see um, in the wake of the election and everyone's shock is that this reawakening in civic engagement, that the marches were just the most visible part of it, and that that day-to-day action really added up, and that people showed up to the polls where it counts. So there's a lot of signs at the DC march, at least, because that's where I was, that made these sort of grand statements about science, or, you know, facts greater than opinion. And they're epistemological signs, right? What is the nature of knowledge and facts and truth? And that's very interesting for scientists, and they love talking about that stuff. Not my favorite political signs. My favorite sign at the march was my old colleague, Gretchen Goldman. She had the logos of a bunch of federal agencies like CDC, EPA, NOAA, and uh, and she just wrote on there, federal science saves lives. And I, I was like, I, <laughs> I just wanted to give her a hug. It was so perfect uh, because those very tangible, concrete benefits that we see from public science or from the other policies that we care about, that's what counts for people every day. Um, so, you know, when you say get back to basics, it's not just the basic fundamentals of civics that are important, but also the basic public services that we want and that are immensely popular with the overwhelming majority of people, um, reminding them that that's what government is and that's what government can do. That is so critically important uh, for keeping our civic life healthy.
1: So it seems like you're keeping the work going. You hosted a week of action following the march. How can people continue to plug into the march's efforts?
0: Yeah, for, for now, it's signing up for um, the
1: marches emails
0: um, on the website. And then for the satellite marches that are active locally, finding those folks and volunteering with them um, and,
1: and being part of that movement too. Aaron, it is truly a pleasure to meet you. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us and to the whole March for Science team for what you pulled off in April and what you've been doing since then. Thank you. Yay, science. Yay, democracy. That does it for this episode of The Resistors. Thanks for listening and thanks so much to Aaron and the whole March for Science team. You can find more info at marchforscience.com and you can connect with Aaron Huertas at sciencecommunicationmedia.com or on Twitter at Aaron Huertas. You can also listen to more episodes of The Resistors on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at theresisters.co.